In the vicinity of Richmond, Vermont, you'll find the Huntington River Gorge. It is a beautiful place, but deadly. In the last 40 years, 20 people have lost their lives in this little gorge. Those injured while swimming have numbered in the hundreds. On the surface, the water looks calm and placid, but beneath the attractive scene are strong currents that run swiftly over treacherous waterfalls and into big whirlpools that drag people under. Public safety officials in Vermont have designated the gorge the single most deadly place in the entire state. Warning signs have been posted by a concerned individual on a side of the gorge reading when the water is high due to rain or snow melt. Especially powerful currents can easily sweep you over the falls and trap you underneath the water. A debate rages as to what to do with this dangerous place. All the while, guess what? Swimmers keep coming to the Huntington River Gorge to swim. One college student attending the University of Vermont just 14 miles away from the gorge said she had heard about the beauty of the location, had the desire to see it for herself. She commented that people know about the dangers and try their best to be careful. We just go swimming in the shallow part, she said. You can't change the water and you can't stop people from going in. Hmm. Warnings. Spiritually, God gives us many warnings in the Bible. And when we fail to heed those warnings, it can turn into tragic neglect. Hebrews chapter 2, God warns us that neglecting Christ's message leads to drifting from Christ's safety. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, where we pick up this morning, For this reason, now he's just, of course, gone through his comparison of Christ and the angels, the supremacy of the Son in Hebrews chapter 1. For this reason, for all that I've just told you, we must pay pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, which we're looking at this morning, is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Sprinkled throughout this letter are these five warning passages. Very important to understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across. But in order to understand these warning passages, we need to remember who the letter is addressed to and why. The author of Hebrews wrote this letter to Jewish Christians to the Hebrews, to Jewish Christians, professing Christians, who were in danger of turning back from their faith, turning away from Christ, all right, and back into Judaism. They were falling away from faith in Christ, turning back from what they knew to be the truth, what they had professed to believe in, they were turning away from it. They had heard the message of Christ with their ears, but not with their hearts. And each of the five warning passages sends a singular message. Stop. Stop turning away. Please experience 
Not just know, but experience the grace, God's grace, which can truly change your lives. Listen with your heart, not just with your ears. You've heard the message. You know all about it. Now, listen with your heart and let God's grace change you. Stop and listen. Those are the, that's the point of the five warning passages. We'll see them repeatedly as we go through the book of, of Hebrews. Each warning passage, then, is a warning to people who started with Christ but turned away from Christ. And God warns people who are professors but not possessors. Cultural Christians, but not genuine Christians. Outwardly religious, not inwardly changed. Anyone who makes a profession of faith without any real possession of faith, where it changes their lives, is not a believer and will fall away under pressure. So many, many people listen with their ears, but not with their hearts. There is no real heart change, and so when there is no real heart change, there is no real Christianity, no matter what we profess. God warns us that we will fall away from Christianity when the pressures of life squeeze us hard if we have not truly experienced, that's more than knowing in your head, experienced God's life-changing grace. So remember this principle as we study the book of Hebrews. Perseverance as Christians is our assurance of salvation. Perseverance as Christians is our assurance of salvation. Those who stick with what God is doing in their lives, that's where our assurance of salvation comes from. All right, that's all background this morning because we just need to introduce the concept of these, four, these five warning passages as we look at the first one. Let's take a look then as we start in, in verse 2 at the, the first part of his warning here. Violating God's law leads to judgment. Verse 2, because 4, if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, proved reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. It's the first stage of his if-then argument. So the first part of it is that violating God's law leads to judgment. The author of Hebrews, of course, has just concluded this great comparison between Christ and the angels and how superior Christ is to the angels. So it's natural to follow that up with a statement about the contrast between law and grace. By the way, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, in case you're wondering. It's anonymous. We don't know who wrote the book. But just in case you're wondering, because I get this question every now and then, about my favorite theory concerning authorship, I'll just tell you right now, I think my favorite theory is that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. All right, we got that out of the way. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we're told here that the law came through angels. The problem is that nowhere in the Old Testament are we ever told that the law came through angels. It's implied, however, in a couple of passages in the Old Testament, one of them being Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, 10,000 angels. At his right hand there was flashing lightning uh, for them. 
So that implies at least that the angels were there on Mount Sinai when God gave the law. Stephen, however, in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7, states twice that the law was given through angels, through the work of angels. And Jewish tradition taught that God used the angels to give the law to to Moses on Mount Sinai. The if in this passage is an assumed reality, not a possibility. We tend to think of ifs as being, well, that may be possible. But in Greek grammar, certain ifs were assumed to be real, and this one is assumed to be real. So if would be better translated as since. Since the law came through angels, and it proved to be reliable, unalterable, unchangeable, absolute. All right? Every violation of that law in the Old Testament brought a just recompense or a just payment, a consequence for the violation. And the word translated transgression meant an act that overstepped a boundary. The law set up boundaries. That's what the law does. And when we step beyond those boundaries, we transgress. We go beyond the boundary. The word translated disobedience meant the refusal to listen and unwillingness to hear. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to step over the boundary and do what I want to do. So when people actively stepped over the boundary or when they refused to listen to the the warnings of God, then they suffered the consequences under the law because the law was set up. Here's the boundary, step over the boundary, here's the consequence. That's the way it works. God sets up boundaries, fences, if you will, or guardrails. That's the way I think of the law. The law is like fences on the highway of life. It's like guardrails on the highway of life. The law is there to protect us from going beyond and getting in danger or suffering the consequences when we cross over those fences. So when we refuse to listen to God's warnings, because God's warnings are designed to help us avoid stepping over those boundaries, and we choose to drive over those fences and follow our own desires in life, then guess what? We face the consequences. We face the judgment of God. So the question is, when God speaks through his word, do we listen? Are we actually hearing? I don't mean do we hear with our two ears. We often hear things with our ears. I mean do we hear with our third ear, the heart? Do we understand what is being said? So many times we look at the rules of God in the Bible and we just sort of choose to ignore them. Well, you know, that's really not for me. That doesn't apply to me. It's not so much that we deny Christ. Lots of people say, I believe in Christ. I believe in the Bible. I go to church. I'm a good person, right? But in fact, we're ignoring the law. We are refusing to listen to his warnings, and we just go right on past the fences in life and do what we want. The reality is that sin has consequences. We will pay for those choices even if we think we are good people. Actress Sophia Loren told USA Today in 1999, I'm not a practicant, 
but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. Okay. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. How often do we think like that about ourselves, though? Or hear that from other people? I'm good. The Bible's not nice if I'm not going to heaven. See, we defend our choices as being right, even when they violate what God tells us in the Bible. The Bible says what? There is none righteous, no, not one. None. Zero. We all do wrong. And the entire Old Testament, the whole law system in the Old Testament, teaches us that when we violate God's law, there will be judgment. We will pay. We will not escape. That's the law. And none are righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all are condemned under the law. There's no escape. Ben Rogozinski was already in big trouble. He was waiting with his lawyer for a court hearing in an empty room at DeKalb County Courthouse near Atlanta. He was facing charges of of obstructing officers and giving false information. While meeting with his attorney, Ben Rogozinski excused himself to go to the bathroom. And he used a stool to climb into the ceiling, pushed up the ceiling tiles, climbed into the ceiling in order to make an escape from the courthouse. He was well on his way crawling through the ceiling until the ceiling gave way. And he fell ten feet right into the middle of the judge's chambers. (laughs) Caught. Nabbed. No way out. So it is with everyone who violates God's law. We are caught. There's no escape from God's law. There is absolutely no escape from God's law unless, unless we experience God's grace. See where he's going with this argument? The argument is very, very simple here. Since no one escaped the penalty of God's law, how can we think we will be okay if we neglect the grace that is the only way out of the law. God knew the law was absolute, so he sent Jesus Christ to meet the law's demands for each of us. That's grace. We don't deserve it. It's pure grace. And every one of us, that's the only way out from the penalty of the law. If we choose to ignore his grace then, we're in deeper trouble than those who ignored God's law. If violating God's law leads to judgment, then how much more is it true that neglecting God's grace leads to judgment? And that's verses 3 and 4. 
So he says, for if the word spoken through angels, verse 2, proved unalterable and every transgression, every transgression and disobedience, unwillingness to listen, received a just recompense, judgment, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the word for neglect in verse 3 means to be careless, to be unconcerned, to sort of disregard something. It's not so much that someone might deny or reject the salvation. Oh, I don't believe that. It's just to disregard it, to be careless. It's not important. We can easily be careless or unconcerned then about the message of salvation and the truth of God's grace. That's why we started in verse 1 with the exhortation to pay closer attention. Don't be careless about what I am saying. Pay close attention God warns us not to take salvation for granted, but to be very concerned about understanding and applying salvation to our lives. And he says in verse 1, lest we drift away. Drift away. That's a great image. The word for drift away is a nautical term. It was also used in the, uh, in the first century for somebody who lost a ring, for example. It just, it's gone. It's disappeared, but it was primarily a nautical term, obviously, to float by or be washed away. A ship, a ship that, that drifts past the safety of the port is now unavailable to that safety. It's in trouble. A swimmer who is focused on enjoying the ocean but doesn't pay attention to the riptide all of a sudden finds themselves too far for the lifeguard to save them. Drifts away through unconcern, through carelessness, no big deal. It's not really all that important, you see. And then we wake up and we've drifted way out of reach. That's the message here. That's the warning. According to the Consumer Reports National Research Center, one out of every five gift card recipients never used their cards in 2006, representing $972 million in unredeemed cards. The top reasons for not using gift cards include haven't had time, 50%. Haven't found anything I wanted, 37%. Lost the card, 14%. Expired 12%. Think of salvation as a gift card. It's the gift card. And as he writes the book of Hebrews, salvation is the gift card that God offered to all those who understood the message, who heard the message. It's the gift card. Many take that gift card. Many today take that gift card. And they think that having the gift card is enough. Well, I've got the gift card. It's enough. But if we don't use the gift card, we don't actually accept the grace and let God change our lives. Nothing really happens. We just got the gift card. And that's the situation for many in the book of Hebrews. They got the gift card all right. They got the message. But it didn't change their lives. And so the warning is, watch out. 
pay attention, you might be one of those that drift away if you don't pay attention. So we don't actually have salvation just because we have the gift card. And what are the reasons? I haven't had time. Lost it. Whatever. Unconcern. So if we neglect to use it, we will lose it. Now, I think that's a huge warning to all of us in church. We go to church. Maybe we grow up in a Christian home. We're taught what the Bible says, but we get caught up in life and we start to drift. We go through the motions, but there's never really any heart change. Eventually, we find ourselves not paying attention anymore, in danger of drifting slowly away from our faith in Christ and out of the safety of salvation. That happens over and over again. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting we lose our salvation. I don't believe that's possible, to lose salvation. We never had it in the first place. Do you get the point of Hebrews? That's his point. You never had it in the first place. You just had the gift card. That's all. You never had it in the first place. We were professors, not possessors, if all of that happens. That's the argument of Hebrews in a nutshell. Many a young person has grown up in church. By the way, many a story of those who today espouse anti-Christian thinking. Guess where they grew up? In Bible-believing churches. In Bible-believing churches. They've gone away from it all. And many a young person grows up in church and turns away from Christ in adulthood. It's not that people set out to go that way. And just sort of pleasantly drift away in the stuff of life. And only vaguely remember what it was like looking back, you know. Church was a pleasant memory way back then, but it's gone. The author of Hebrews says, watch out, pay attention, be careful, listen. This is big, serious stuff. Pay attention to the message that the grace actually has to change your heart and your life. You can't be saved by your parents' faith. It's you. It's got to change you. And if it doesn't change you, it isn't real. And you're in danger of just drifting away. So going to church is not enough. Being religious is not enough. We must truly experience God's grace for salvation to be real. Three reasons then he gives. We'll go through these very quickly. Three reasons why we should be very careful to pay attention to this message of Christ. First of all, we should pay attention because salvation is offered by Christ himself. Jesus Christ offers that salvation. In verse 3 it says that salvation was spoken through Christ. The law came through the angels, he says, but salvation came through Christ, who is far superior to the angels, 
He's already made that argument in chapter 1. When Christ spoke, He spoke as the Son of God. And His message gave us the way out of our dilemma with the law. We can't keep the law. You can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. But Christ, in our place, offers our way out from under that law which condemns us. We have to pay attention then to the message spoken by Christ as the Son of God. We must listen to Him and what He said. We must listen with our third ear, our heart, not just listen with our physical ears, not just follow some religious symbols. In Luke 9, we're told that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and He took them up to a high mountaintop. And there He was praying with them, and they kind of fell asleep, but they tended to do that a bit. And an incredible experience took place, the transfiguration. And in glorious transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before them from His normal earthly look to this glorious, radiant presence. And he was conversing there on the mountaintop in front of Peter, James, and John with with, uh, Moses and Elijah. And all three of them in this glorious splendor were conversing. And Peter, James, and John, I imagine they woke up and they looked. What? Are we still dreaming? What is this? Incredible experience, right? And uh, they were overwhelmed. Well, Peter was overwhelmed, but not enough to shut his mouth. And uh, so he pipes up in the middle of this glorious experience. Oh, Jesus, he says, I think we ought to make three shrines on the top of this mountain. Let's make three shrines. This is a holy place. We'll make a shrine for Moses. We'll make a shrine for Elijah. We'll make a shrine for you, Jesus. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Lots. Sounds so religious though, doesn't it? And a cloud overshadows them. And God speaks. God always has a big voice. I wish I had a deep voice. I could be better God, see? I could really make God speak here, but I don't. So you've got to imagine it. God speaks out of this cloud. And he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. You see, Moses and Elijah aren't even on equal terms with Jesus. He's the Son of God. Listen to Him. You got it all wrong, Peter. Oh, it sounds so religious, though. It sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? Three shrines, let's make this holy. Let's make this beautiful. You got it all wrong. Jesus, listen to Him. Are we listening to Him? Or are we filled with all the stuff that comes with church? That comes with religion? Mm. Pay attention to what He is saying, God says, and stop with the silliness of religious shrines. So the first reason why we should pay attention to salvation is that salvation was offered through Christ himself. Secondly, the message of God's grace was confirmed by the apostles. The message of Christ's salvation was confirmed, he says, 
here in this verse 3, by those who heard the message firsthand. There's a strong emphasis in the New Testament, in New Testament on firsthand eyewitness information. We sometimes use the word apostle in a very broad sense to mean anyone who is sent of God. But in the New Testament, in the narrow sense of the word apostle, he had to meet certain qualifications. And one of those was that an apostle had to have had direct contact with Jesus Christ in person. He had to have heard directly from Jesus Christ. So that's why the author of Hebrews says, it was confirmed to us by those who actually heard Jesus. They were eyewitness, earwitness accounts of who he was and what he said and what he did. An apostle was someone who had first-hand information, not second- or third-hand information about Jesus. See, our, our information about Jesus is, comes through multi-hand sources. We have it, and it's reliable, but they had first-hand information. Apostolic authority then was founded upon this credential. So here the message of Christ was confirmed by those who heard, meaning the apostles. By the way, Paul is also considered an apostle in the New Testament because he had first-hand direct encounter with Christ as well. In fact, he was supernaturally taught directly by Jesus Christ. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, and 12, In no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. That leads into the other credentials then of an apostle, which are also identified here in Hebrews chapter 2. Salvation was offered by Christ. It was confirmed by those who heard, the apostles, and it was validated by proofs from God. Verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. What were the proofs? What were the proofs that this came from God? What were the evidences that this was really from God? How did God authenticate His message through Christ and the apostles? He authenticated or He validated that message through the signs and the wonders and the miracles that the apostles performed. Those signs, those wonders, those miracles were the credentials of the apostle. Those were the signs of the apostles. The purpose of these miracles that the the apostles performed in the first century was to authenticate the message that they were preaching, to prove it. So these were called, we call them sign gifts then of the Holy Spirit. And these sign gifts were given by the Holy Spirit as proofs for the message. They authenticated the message. And that's the third reason why we should listen or pay attention to this. Therefore, in Acts chapter 14 verse 23 we're told, Therefore they, that's Paul and Barnabas, two apostles, spent a long time there speaking boldly with with reliance upon the Lord, who was, this is the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So the testimony of Acts is that the apostles did signs and wonders. The testimony of Paul is that he did signs and wonders to prove his apostleship that he had a direct 
line, a direct information. He was an eyewitness, an ear witness of Jesus Christ himself. And his message was real. So we need to understand that certain miraculous gifts were given by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of authenticating the message of the apostles. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, for example, that tongue speaking was given as a sign not to believers but to unbelievers. Tongues was a sign to unbelievers, he says, that God was confirming the gospel preached by the apostles. These miracles, then, were the credentials of the apostles to an unbelieving world. So to summarize his argument, God's grace was offered by Christ, confirmed by the apostles who heard and saw, and validated by proofs, miraculous proofs from God. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Because we have the record here. Do we hear with our hearts what God is telling us? I'm not talking about whether you go to church or not. I'm not even talking about which church you go to. But are we listening to God? And his message of salvation. Do we hear what our, with our hearts what God is telling us? Or are we just caught up in our re- religious rituals? Of going to church and doing the right things. A circus parade was moving through the streets of Milan, Italy, when suddenly one of the elephants veered from the line and marched into church. Now, remember, in Milan, church doors are very big. Churches are very big. All right? And in the summertime, oftentimes, the church doors are left wide open. So this elephant just took off. And into church he went, into this large church. And the visitor wandered up the center aisle, trumpeted a bit, looked around, and headed back out and joined the parade. I think many of us humans are like that pious pachyderm. On Sunday morning, we sort of lurch into church, make a few noises, hopefully pleasant ones, observe the congregation, say the right things, look right, then step out to resume our place in the parade. The great drama of worship, the great concept of God and his grace, how he changes lives, is lost on us because we're busy with the other stuff which seems so important. We're busy trying to make our lives better for ourselves. We're just elephants in church. We do our religious thing, but don't actually listen to God with a heart that's ready to change. God says, stop. That's what this whole warning passage is about. Stop. Pay attention before it's too late. And you just sort of drift off away from my great grace that is offered to you. 
where you are. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, almost persuaded to be a Christian, he's like the man who was almost pardoned, but he was hanged. Like the man who was almost rescued, but he was burned in the house. A man that is almost saved is damned. Almost. On a warm Southern California day in June 2002, Richard Van Pham set out on his 26-foot sailboat from Long Beach Harbor for a three-hour adventure to Catalina Island. The uh, 62-year-old Vietnamese immigrant was not prepared for what was about to happen. As evening approached, a storm blew up. Well, he hadn't read the storm warnings. The winds were so strong, they broke the mast and rudder of his boat. When Van Pham attempted to call for help, he discovered his radio was inoperative. He hadn't bothered to check that either. And his outboard motor wouldn't start. It was broken. Unable to steer or control his boat, he was carried by the waves and the wind. He drifted. The 25-mile voyage turned into a 2,500-mile journey of desolation and survival. Because he had no other family members, and he hadn't told anyone he was going out, no one missed him, and no one filed a missing persons report, and there was no search. Each day he drifted at sea. Van Pham looked in vain for any sign of land. I didn't know where I was or where to go, he admitted. For months I saw nothing, only water, sky, and seagulls. Unaware of where he was, he drifted aimlessly and survived by eating sea turtles, fish, and seagulls, and by drinking rainwater. On September 17, 2002, a Navy P-3 patrol plane on a drug interdiction mission spotted the broken-down vessel 300 miles off the coast of Costa Rica. A nearby frigate, the USS McCluskey, proceeded to pluck him from his disabled craft, deposited him in Guatemala, and he flew back to Southern California. But how many people in this world are lost just like that? Just drifting. Just drifting. Unable to save themselves. With a life taking them where they don't really want to go. But it's all they have. And they're just drifting. Without help. Without God's help. Without God's grace. Spiritually, every one of those people is a goner. We've got God's grace. The first question is, are we listening? Is God's grace, has he grabbed our lives? Or are we just drifting? Because if we're drifting, we can't help either. And if we don't pay attention with our hearts to the message of salvation then, this is eternally life-changing, right? We too will drift away. We can't help anyone else and lots of people. Maybe, maybe people here in this room are drifting, just drifting. Come to Christ. Listen to him. 
Trust him as your personal savior. Let him make you a new person and stop drifting because drifting leads to nowhere. Come to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation, the scriptures tell us. You don't have tomorrow. Father, it's easy to neglect, to become careless about this message. The message of your son, Jesus Christ, who died that we might live. Lord, it's easy, so easy for us to begin to just sort of say we follow that message, say we follow you, but it's not real. Make it real in each of our lives. Change our lives by your grace. Help us to pay attention to that message that transforms us and through us we can give that message to others who are drifting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hymn number